podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. Well, Nicole Kidman's called me the godmother to Aussies in Hollywood, and although we're not married, the title of the Aussie godfather well and truly should go to Phil Noyce. Phil's been a supporter and mentor to countless Aussies since he first hit Hollywood back in 1978 with his acclaimed movie, Newsfront. That film opened doors that led to Dead Calm, which also paved the way for Nicole Kidman to become one of the most famous actresses in the world. You can see us Aussies look after each other. His other films include the Harrison Ford movies Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger, as well as The Bone Collector, The Quiet American, The Giver and his award-winning Aussie movie Rabbit Proof Fence. Phil invited me into his Hancock Park home in LA where his two young children were playing in the backyard and his lovely wife was cooking dinner. Phil's such a master storyteller and he didn't disappoint when he sat in his guest house to chat about his amazing journey so far. Here's Phil. So, yeah, we've got the air conditioning running here. Is this your office back here? Or? It is. It's my office and uh, it's also the bird's house, um, but it's also our guest house, which doesn't make it a good office because we've always got guests. <laughs> so It's funny you talk about the guest house because um, I've already done – quite a few of these where Phil Noyce's house has featured in um, – you're like the godfather of the Australian acting community here. I mean, I don't know if you still are. Thank God I'm not anymore. <laughs> but we've had a few. I think Nicole – Brian Brown, Nicole. Um, uh, Jason. Edison, Jason Clark. Um, yeah. They've all Did Heath Ledger ever stay with you or – no, he didn't stay with us, but he used to visit a lot. I know he had a lot of people staying in his place all the time too, right? A tribe, a full tribe. <laughs> yeah. He had a house over in Los Filos, um, which was sort of party central. That's right. And I think Joel was telling me that he, you didn't even know him that well because he was a friend of Jason's that you you took him in a little bit. Took Joel in, yeah. yes, of course. Yeah. Any friend of Jason's is a friend of mine. <laughs> Um, but I, I can't. I don't know. I can't remember how long um, Jason and Joel were there because I was frequently not there. So they would come and go, and I would come and go, and occasionally we'd notice that each of us was in the house somewhere. I think everybody thinks that Nicole did Dead Calm, and then the next week she was a famous movie star. It's but true. she did have a few trips where no, no, she, she was. crashed on couches, right? She did, but um, but she was ver- once Dead Calm came out. She was here. Um, but yes, to answer your question, yes, she she crashed on our couch over at the Shadow Marmont for for a little while because um, we used to live there. Um, and uh, but once Dead Calm came out, I can remember we were both. Her and I were staying at the Chateau Marmont on the third, fourth floor. And um, she went out to lunch one day and then came back and announced that she was going to be in, she's going to be the co star of Tom Cruise's next, um, next movie. So she went out to lunch with Tom and he didn't propose to her, but he proposed that she be in his film. And that was. Well, probably just two or three months after the movie came out. So, but before the film came out, she was here. Because the movie was delayed a little while because we did a reshoot on the ending. You you grew up in the outback. You didn't move into a city until you were 12. Is that right? I wouldn't call it the outback. I mean, you know, it's not nowhere near the outback, say, like Broken Hill. But to other people in who live in cities or who don't live in Australia, yes, it's the outback Griffith. I was curious about what your exposure to film and TV was in Griffith. And there were travelling tents or is that right? Travelling shows, yes. The travelling shows, you know, television came to Australia in 1956. 
but it didn't come to Griffiths till 1962. Um, so for the first 12 years of my life, I lived TV free. Um, and around the countryside of Australia, uh, until television destroyed it, was a circuit of sideshow acts. A ventriloquist was coming, a hypnotist, a magician, um, or some other uh, show, dancing, singing, whatever it was. There was always something coming through. There were two ways to get into one of these shows. One was to go under the tent, which was uh, always fraught with a bit of uh, <laughs> danger because you might get caught and get your butt kicked. Um, and the other way, which was a sure winner, was to offer yourself as a stooge. Now, a stooge was somebody, a likely lad, usually a lad, because um, you could make fun of them more easily, a local lad that everyone knew who would volunteer to go up and be a part of the spruiking before the show. So the person who was running the show would call them up, and I can remember one called the Roaring Twenties, where I went up, of course, and she said, uh, stick out your tongue, which uh, stupidly I shouldn't have done, but I did. She puts a little bit of paper on the end of my tongue and then she takes a sword that's bigger than her and cuts the end of the <laughs> paper. <laughs> the audience uh, just went crazy when the sword came down and I should have been smarter and never volunteered for that one, but I can't ever forget the awe of the audience when she pulled that stunt. I bet you sold a lot of tickets to that show. <laughs> I didn't sell that many tickets, but I went in for free. At that show, there was a young lady who was part of the show who would run away, which is something that I dreamt of doing every time I, one of these shows came through. She'd run away with the show from Leeton, which was about 43 k's from Griffith. And there she was... Um, she was part of a trick where they loaded a 22 long bore rifle with shells, put them in, and then the guy would fire at her and supposedly the shell would pass straight through her body and a mirror behind her would crack. Well, they fired, or they loaded the gun, they fired the, the rifle, the mirror cracked and so did she, down. And as she went down, we saw that the pad that was around her tummy had slipped and she'd been shot in the stomach. She almost died. And uh, th that was another lesson I learned, which was if you're going to join the show, don't be a, a, a stooge. You've got to be one of the stars. The stars of most shows, the big shows that came through the circuses, the biggest show was the Worth Circus, which is a family circus. They came through on a train. We would go down once a year. They'd come through and we'd go down and we'd get up on the side of the train and look in. Well, down the back end were the guys that put the tent up and, and all of that stuff. In the middle were the people like the young girl who was sort of the run-of-the-mill performers. Up the front was the silver service carriages of the stars, the trapeze artists. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> it sounds like you're talking about Hollywood with the dressing room trailers. <laughs> well, no. But I decided that I wanted to get on that train, but I was only going to be at the front of the train or the back, I guess it was, the back of the train, um, you know, in the, where the silver service was. Didn't want to do it rough. So that's what I did. I left the town and joined the circus. Been in it ever since. <laughs> so, well, you did leave the town, but you went to I did leave the town. To I, I went to the Sydney for six years, but then I discovered that the way to join the circus was to make movies was the be next best thing. But it was the same, you know, directing. I mean, you're like the ringmaster. Roll the drums, bring on the spotlight, talk to keep everyone happy, you know, make sure that the show goes on and that it's entertaining and it hits all of its high spots. The show's nothing without a ringmaster. That's interesting that it started so young in that way for you. It was uh, before television and I think, uh, you know, probably uh, TV is a certain enemy of imagination and nowadays, of course, you know, uh, the internet is the complete enemy of imagination in many ways um, because it takes all the effort out of everything. Um, but we had radio where, you know, you heard things but you had to 
see them for yourself. Um, plus you had plenty of time where there was nothing else to do but invent games and invent invent things, you know. And um, and and the inspiration, as I said, was these traveling shows. So when the show went, I would try and build my own show, whether it was the magic show, whether it was a um, uh, um, a ghost train, you know, that was built out of sheets running through all the bedrooms in the house, <laughs> you know, getting people to come and pay to go through it. I think the relationship between the performer and the audience was something that got into my uh, uh, um, head really early, you know, just that the ooh of the audience. I also was lucky enough to, uh, to be challenged um, by a young Aboriginal friend to fight him as part of Jimmy Sharman's boxing troupe. Now, um, the reason I said yes was because it was a way to earn four shillings, but also because Jimmy Sharman, Jimmy Sharman, the film director's father, uh, not only was he outside spruiking and inviting someone to fight someone and who's going to fight this guy, but also during the show, he was the referee and, like a ventriloquist, would choreograph on the spot the fight. As I discovered, it was my first lesson in fight choreography. So when you got to Sydney, um, you I gather you got exposed to what American Underground movies first? Was that your introduction uh, to film and TV? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering, I mean, back in uh, 1968, I was 18 years old and... Uh, I escaped from uh, the security of the Upper North Shore, where I was living at the time in, with my parents, um, and uh, ventured into Glebe uh, in the inner city. One Saturday afternoon, I was wandering along Glebe Point Road, and I came across a psychedelic image on a telegraph pole, um, a drawing of a woman's face, and the words underground movies. Well, the word underground, I didn't know exactly what it meant, um, but um, the psychedelic image and the word underground was enough to have me turn up the next Sunday at the then uh, Union Theatre, now called the Footbridge Theatre, at Sydney University for a screening of about 17 short films, of which three or four were Australian, the rest were American, and they were the antithesis of what I had known up to that time as cinema um, because they were all uh, made for tiny, tiny budgets, starting at about a dollar. Maybe the biggest one was a few hundred dollars, but they were made as the personal expression of artists, not for commercial reasons. Looking at the screen, uh, you know, I was fascinated by the experiments in cinema. And there were a couple of Australian films, uh, one by uh, Aggie Reed called Boobs A Lot, which was fantastic because it was, uh, it took um, an image that was often seized at the airport of Australians at the time, um, Playboy magazine from America which if, you f- if it was found coming into the country was often uh, um, taken um, as pornography. Um, and Aggie Reed, a, a, a Sydney film artist, had um, uh, fo- re-photographed images of female anatomy and set it to a pop song. So that caught my, the attention of, a, of an 18-year-old boy. But after the screening, uh, having had my mind blown about the, po- the new possibilities of what I now regarded as cinema, um, I hung around in the foyer and there I met the three guys, Aggie Reed, Albie Toms and, um, and David Perry, who ran this film collective called Ubu Films and had organised the screening. And I got to talking to them and I realised that their motto was, anyone can make a movie. I said, hey, anyone, that's me. They also told me that they had an office and they lived in a terrace house in uh, Redfern 
And the other thing that I noticed about them was that they all had beards. They all called themselves film directors. They lived in a terrace house and they all had beards. So I went home, didn't shave, haven't shaved since. (laughs) (laughs) Always had a beard because I thought that was the first prerequisite of calling yourself a film director. Graduated from high school, worked digging sewage ditches while I, to raise money and within eight weeks of leaving school, I was a film director because I made my first film. Now, is this the movie where you, you charged people for the roles to get the money? That's yeah. quite an interesting <laughs> GoFundMe <laughs> technique of, of the old days. Well, I'd saved about 200 bucks, but I knew that to make the film I wanted to make was going to cost about 800 So I thought I've, I've got a certain amount of time before I go to university, start university. I um, So I thought best way is to sell parts. Best way to sell a part is to think up a story that 18-year-olds are going to want to be in. So my story was about the sex fantasies of a teenager. Good one. <laughs> Was this the one called Better Terrain Better Terrain in Hell, yeah. So for 300 bucks, you could have all the fantasies or for 20 bucks, just a little fantasy or whatever. You could come in at any price point. So <laughs> I learned my first lesson and that is, which I've always remembered because it's an important lesson, it's much better to choose the actors than to have them choose you because the guy that gave me the most of the money to make the movie was a doctor's son from Rose Bay uh, who turned out to be a lousy actor. Um, But he was the lead of my first film. But I was probably a lousy director. (laughs) Do you still have a copy of that film? I don't have a copy, but the National Library in in, uh, Canberra does have a copy. Wow. Yeah. And it has been screened at a couple of film festivals and it's not as good as I remember it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you you actually were in the inaugural year of the film school there right, as well, so right? I'm a poster boy for government intervention um, in the Australian film industry in as much as uh, there I am, I'm, uh, I'm 18 and I decide to make movies, so I make a movie. About the same time, Barry Jones of Quiz Kids fame, who, who was – famous as a um, quiz champion on radio. He and um, uh, Philip Adams, who still writes for uh, The Australian every weekend, um, but at the time ran an advertising agency, the two of them got together and uh, press-ganged the then Prime Minister John Gordon into kick-starting an Australian film industry, modelled on the Eastern European countries like Poland and Czechoslovakia, which were essentially socialist countries, but who had government-sponsored film industries. John Gordon, for whatever reason, probably for his own immortality, uh, which is now guaranteed because he did start restart the Australian film industry, he said yes. And so they started a three-tiered system in 1969 um, just overnight, um, an experimental film fund, which was for guys like me who were scraping emulsion off uh, film stock and colouring it um, and, and doing other little experiments, a film school, which turned out to be for guys like me because I went there just three years later or four years later, um, and an, a, a film fund um, that was an, a, a, like a, an investment bank called the Australian Film Finance Corporation, um, which invested in feature films. So the idea was that with this starter fund, this film school and this investment bank, that, uh, hey, presto, snap your fingers and wait a couple of years and there'll be an Australian film industry just like growing grapes or any other industry. But it worked. (laughs) I mean, It sure did. It worked. Um, no one can believe it. Soon after, there was a massive turnaround in Australia and the the Liberal Country Party that had been in office for 23 years was overturned in 1972 and replaced by the Australian Labor Party 
under um, an amazing, charismatic, uh, a visionary leader called Gough Whitlam, who had this vision of a new Australian society. They instigated a system of, of support for all the arts, not just film. A cradle-to-grave system um, uh, that was administered by the Australia Council for the Arts, uh, which um, uh, sponsored arts at every level of, of society and at every age. And um, anyway, back to my story. I, was, I went to the film school in 1973, having made about 15 short films up to that point. Um, and after graduating from the film school, made my first long-form short or short feature, Backroads, in 1977, uh, backed by a $25,000 grant from one of these funds. And then from there, just a year and a half later, I was directing my first feature film, Newsfront, which was financed in part by um, private investors, but mainly by the New South Wales Film Corporation and the Australian Film Finance Corporation. So I'm a poster boy for the whole damn film intervention. Well, that was in 1978, right, Newsfront? That was 1978. Was it... Was it ten years ago we did that special screening? Yeah, at the American uh, Cinematheque. Cinematheque, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's amazing uh, how that movie stands up so well. Well, it probably stands up because it was set in the past anyway, so it doesn't age. <laughs> <laughs> um, but after that movie, you you were off. There was that same group of you. Well, I, I said there were certain there were certain uh, things that were percolating in Australia, the baby boomers government intervention but also there was a curiosity amongst the audience because when our films hit the screens Australians flocked to see themselves like babies looking in the mirror they just wanted to see a reflection of themselves up there on the big screen something that they that most people uh, only had distant memories of ever experiencing um so the first films that were made, uh, the first really successful group of films were all set in the past. Caddy, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, the year, not the year my voice, well, the year my voice broke as well, but um, 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 what was Gillian uh, Armstrong's film, The Getting of Wisdom, not The Getting of Wisdom. My Brilliant Career. My Brilliant Career. All successful, all set in the past um, because we were able to look back and reflect through our cinema on how we'd, we'd arrived at that point as Australians. Um, so, and it was possible um, to make the films cheaply enough that you could get your money back in a few months um, in the cinemas in Australia alone. So it was a golden era um, and we had filmmakers who were hungry to express themselves and an audience who was hungry, even with greater hunger, to see themselves. I was going to ask about what it was like with... You know, you didn't know you were in this extraordinary period. You just... You were, you were kids and suddenly you and Peter Weir and Bruce Beresford and Gillian and George Miller were at the forefront of something that nobody could have imagined, right? I mean, did it no, feel that way? I guess now we can look back on it and see that it was extraordinary, but it didn't seem so at the time because we had nothing to compare it to. And then all of you eventually took that success and were able to go to Hollywood um, with your films. But they all started with an Australian film that you took with you, right? I, my first um, feature-length film was Newsfront, um, which was sold around the world um, and here in America to That's New right. Yorker films. It was films. in festivals too, right? It was in festivals, but it was distributed here in America and um, um, in Britain and France and Italy and many other countries. Um, and that's when Hollywood started knocking for the first time. Um, an American agent asked me to join her agency. Um, and uh, the film had its following amongst uh, 
Hollywood um, directors and, and producers, um, one of which was Tony Bill, who had uh, been the producer of a couple of big films, The Sting amongst them um, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and uh, later went on to direct his own movies and, uh, you know, uh, he was a great admirer of Newsfront and over the next five years I would often visit Tony at his studio out in, um, in, in Venice on the coast here in Los Angeles and it was during one of those visits that when I was leaving that he threw me a manuscript and said, hey, take a read of this. Um, you've got a lot of water down there in Australia. Maybe you could find a way to, to turn this into a movie. And it was uh, the manuscript of a, a, a novel by an American writer called Charles Williams. Um, and it told the story that would become Dead Calm. I took the, uh, the, the manuscript uh, back to Australia, read it, and then told the story to eventually to George Miller, who said, okay, let's turn it into a movie. What had happened was that Tony had tried to make the movie in America for many years, but he'd always been rebuffed by the person that owned the rights to the manuscript, who was the um, former... Um, um, companion of Orson Welles, Oya Kujar, an actress who had lived with Orson in the last years of his life and who had been one of the actors in his version of Dead Calm, um, which he tried to make off the coast of, uh, of uh, Croatia uh, back in the early 60s. But unfortunately, um, his his lead actor uh, contracted and died of cancer um, halfway through or less than halfway through the shoot. So he had to, uh, had to abandon um, the project. Oya had been approached over the years to sell the rights to various people in Hollywood, um, but she felt that Tony Bill, who was the most persistent knocker on her door, um, was a part of the Hollywood establishment. She always refused to sell them. George Miller, on the other hand, came from Australia um, and had a great bedside manner, having trained as a doctor. Um, and he went to see her and convinced her that um, uh, we would make not a Hollywood version, but uh, a version of the of the film in the spirit of Orson Welles. I think George's next call after convincing her to sell the rights was over at Warner Brothers. <laughs> he uh, got them interested in becoming a part of it as well. The, so um, the story was reset, not involving uh, Americans, but involving Australians. Um, an Australian couple replaced the American couple uh, in the story. Uh, but now the bad guy was played by an American and the Australians were the good guys. Um, um, and uh, and we shot the film uh, and then Warner Brothers distributed it around the world and that was the film of course that catapulted Nicole Kidman um, from an unknown Australian actress to the A-list of American actresses a position where as we know she's maintained uh, ever since Ever since 1989, when the film came out here, she's been at the top of that uh, that list, so-called a list of actresses. Well, while you were directing that movie, I mean, you obviously saw something special in her um, to cast her. But as you were directing the movie, did you were you aware? I, I don't know how you can tell when somebody's great or good or not. Good. Oh well, the thing is that uh, it wasn't what she was doing during the movie. It was what she did in her screen test. Because um, I'd never seen anything like it before. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it since. She came in and played two scenes. And, um, you know, it was make-believe as, as tests are. Because um, you're reading opposite, I don't know who she read opposite. But she was so compelling. You know, I um, mean, just, wow, 
had to um, say that you'd just seen lightning in a bottle because uh, we had. I wish we'd saved the audition. Um, but uh, she was just mesmerizing um, and able to, uh, to uh, define the dramatic moment so perfectly. I think it was a, the, one of the scenes, uh, as I recall, was from the end of the movie. It's still in the movie where she has a, a spear gun and she faces um, the character Huey Warner, played by Billy Zane in the, in the final film, faces him with a spear gun and pleads with him not to come towards her because she'll have to fire the, the spear gun into his body. Um, and, um, you know, I can vividly remember her performance. Um, it had everything that uh, you could ever wish for. Well, the movie did pretty well for her, but it also, uh, even though you had an agent and you'd gotten a little ways into the Hollywood system, it sort of, you had another six or seven movies in a row after that that were great big right, films, I, right? What happened was that, um, uh, you know, uh, in Australia up to that time, you know, I'd made, uh, I'd made Australian movies. This was an Australian movie, but it uh, uh, was a thriller. So it spoke, it was a genre film. It spoke an international Esperanto film language. Um, so suddenly the, the phone was ringing um, and uh, with offers to come over to America. Um, so eventually one of them was irresistible. It was to direct um, um, the follow-up to The Hunt for Red October for Paramount Pictures. Um, and I ended up recasting the lead character. Uh, oh, yeah, for that unknown guy, Harrison Ford or whatever with, his with name Harrison is. With right? Harrison Ford. <laughs> um, so Alec that Baldwin was missed out. <laughs> Alec Baldwin did miss out, but that was the beginning of um, just an uninterrupted period of about 10 years for me. You know, I was just making one film after another as fast as I could get back behind a camera there was a movie waiting for me to direct. For whatever reason, most of the films that I made turned out to be commercial successes. Sometimes it was because of what I did, and often it wasn't. Um, but I was also uh, um, supported by great producers and great writers. I was very lucky that um, I was able to be there at the beginning of the Australian film renaissance, and be a part of the, the generation that had, uh, you know, their, their adventures in cinema kick-started by government intervention. But then when I got to Hollywood, I was really lucky to join with um, some, some, some great collaborators um, and to take advantage of a system that took all the pain out of uh, making the movie because the Hollywood, you know, the studio would get the best uh, writers, get the best actors, and then sell the movie all around the world. It was like a, just a dream come true. You know, back in Australia, we really had to um, be like those traveling showmen that came to my small town. You had to work up the crowd beforehand and you had to earn every person that came through the turnstiles. You had to fight for them. Um, you know, you travel around um, like a traveling uh, uh, um, showman um, to get people to come and see your movie. Now suddenly I had this machine that had colonized the whole world, uh, convinced them that whatever came out of the Hollywood studio system was more uh, relevant to them than their own experience, whether they were Eskimos or whoever they were. Um, Hollywood ruled and they did all the work for you. So I can never forget when three weeks into shooting Patriot Games, a couple of guys turned up in a, in a big limousine at the location where we were shooting and came in, popped a trailer into a uh, VCR and played us the trailer for the film. We'd only been shooting it for three weeks, but here was the trailer already. And boy, did it look good. I thought, wow, I want to see that movie. And then I thought, I am seeing it. I'm making it every day. But the machine was so the machine was so efficient. 
um, that it even surprised me. I'm assuming not every movie was a dream come true that you made and I know there was a lot of talk at the time you had a lot of challenges on the movie Sliver. Um, was that one of those movies where in the end you did learn a lot of lessons that made it a better experience than... I wouldn't say I learnt uh, uh, that much on the film, although I did learn, I did relearn something that I'd learnt way back on my first film and that is that sex sells. And later on Sliver, which was a nightmare uh, shooting and was only moderately successful in America, we added about 27 seconds of mildly risque material to the international version of the film, which was heavily advertised as uncensored compared to that mild American version of the movie. 27 seconds. 27 seconds was worth another $97 million at the box office compared to the 37 that it had made in America. Was this 27 seconds of Sharon Stone with no clothes on? No, it was just 27 seconds of, I don't know, forget what. Good lesson. Yeah, it was a lesson I already knew. Um, but for foreign, um, it worked. The year that you made both Quiet American, and I'm looking at the poster here, you've got, what, eight different posters for that film? Eight, Were they different eight countries? Eight of 190, No. That's Harvey Weinstein at his greatest is what you're witnessing there. I remember going to uh, 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 Harvey's office um, and seeing that he had over 150 of these. Different all versions around, of the poster. All around his office. Different ways of selling the quiet American. And I said to him, can I, can I take some of them? Um, and these wow. are just uh, what eight of eight of them, eight of the over 150 different images that he'd had produced to try and work out how to sell the movie. Um, but yeah, what's the question? Oh, that was the, the year that you made you made Quiet American, which got an Oscar nomination for Michael Caine. Was also the same time you went home for the first time back again after all those movies and made Rabbit Proof Fence. And I'm assuming. It, it felt like an important thing for you to do at that point that you wanted to reconnect with that culture that you'd yeah, fallen in love with um, on screen. It was just that point in my life when I read this story of these three little girls um, who um, had to fight to find their way home. It sort of felt to me like the three girls and the story were talking to me, like they were saying, it's time for you to go home. But it was also because having been involved in these giant manipulations of make-believe that I'd been making there in Hollywood, I suddenly read a story that actually spoke to me. I mean, spoke to me deeply inside. Because I'd grown up in the Australian, well, sort of outback, with this dirty little secret that every Australian town has. And that was these people who lived outside the town in what uh, the Americans would call a reservation, um, but what we called the reserve. Because every town in New South Wales and so many in Victoria um, had a reserve outside the town. The reserve was the, um, the supposedly protected area um, of huts and houses um, that were controlled by the state government where the uh, black and mixed race people lived, the Aborigines lived, um, lived in the 50s under the complete control of the state government, um, lived with uh, uh, under draconian laws uh, which prevented them from choosing where they could live, where they would live, presented them from making their own decisions about marriage um, and, uh, and all sorts of other indignities. The reason I called this a dirty little secret was that we, no one talked about it because it wasn't as if we had any history lessons or cultural discussions about the history of the colonisation of Australia, our relations with black people or anything. It was like... These were the people that were out of sight out there and out of mind, out of our minds. And it was only when some of these uh, uh, 
these Indigenous Australians started to excel at sports, that we were forced, because of the Australian love of sports, we were forced to start to ask the question, well, who are these people? Um, so when Yvonne Gulagong, who came from a town near mine, became the best uh, tennis player in the world, we had to admit that she wasn't white. She was, she was black. But, she was an, but we had to admit she was an Australian because she was the best in the world. So of course she was an Australian. So therefore Australians had to be black as well as white. Um, and um, it was the sporting heroes and heroines um, that really opened us up to admitting these people who lived outside all of our towns were also Australians. They weren't Australians officially, however, because until 1967 they couldn't even vote and they weren't counted in the, in the census. When I read this story of these three little girls who had been removed from their parents, these three mixed-race kids who had been sent to a re-education centre uh, to be trained as whites or, or to be trained to assimilate into a, a white culture, it really touched me. You know, I left the project that I was working on, which was The Sum of All Fears, another in the Jack Ryan series for Paramount, another big movie, came back to Australia armed with a handy cam, went out to the outback, started to film this film and uh, was determined to make it even with my little uh, Sony handy cam if I had to. But one thing led to another and uh, we raised the money to make it as a $6 million film. As I was, as I announced that this is what I wanted to do, I was greeted by a chorus of you'll never succeed all around the country. People said, you'll never find the money you'll, and even if you do, you'll never be able to find an audience. Australians don't want to see Indigenous stories. So you're headed for financial ruin if you spend don't spend one penny of your own money on this, even if you get the money. So it was uh, one of the mo the best experiences of my life because I was making a story that really mattered to me and also I was able to disprove all the people that said it was, this is not going to work. Um, <laughs> Must have been a great feeling at the end. It was. It was fantastic um, because I was able to use all of the sales techniques that I'd watched Hollywood use to colonise the minds of people all around the world. Um, and I knew that the, that the way um, to turn this story into a success was to use some of the same um, 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 dive bomber techniques that Hollywood uses, which is to, to inundate the audience with so much information about the project that you just keep building up their awareness and their desire and, the, and they just cannot escape the feeling that they're not alive unless they see this movie, which is what Hollywood does so well. And it's one of the most acclaimed movies in Australian movie history now. Yeah, but it wasn't so much that. It was just that we found an audience and proved them all wrong, you know. Exactly. And everyone made their money back, um, inclu including the Australian Film Finance Corporation, which was now under another name. But you know, all the investors got their money, and and we still and we're still receiving checks. I think our last check was for a hundred thousand dollars about four months ago. Wow. Um, so it's still still bringing in money. So um, before we wrap up, I always talk to everybody about the Aussies in Hollywood and. I remember back when we were trying to start our organisation, Australians in Film, and we had called it Laughter, the LA Film and TV Association. I remember <laughs> Rabbit Proof Fence was a screening and David Pratt and I were talking to you and you were like, you're never going to get anywhere unless you change the name. <laughs> and so thanks to you, we always credit you with, you know, having changed the name. But now there's 800 members, there's labs, there's you know, filmmaking, it's not just a few screenings a, a couple of times a month. There are so many Australians here in front of and behind the camera. It's impossible to keep up with it. What, what do you think is the reason for this enormous growth from such a tiny country? One, it's talent. Obviously, there's an enormous uh, talent pool there in Australia. Um, 
but it's it goes back to Barry Jones um, and um, uh, Philip Adams, who convinced Prime Minister Gordon uh, to intervene um, to support the arts and to support a film industry. Um, so, um, you know, every every state has a wonderful uh, acting academy. The two best known are NIDA in Sydney and WAPA in, uh, in Western Australia. More than half a dozen theatre companies in Sydney are government supported and, uh, you know, training actors, directors, storytellers. The Australian government, you know, has supported the arts. As a result, you know, we're just fighting way outside our weight level in terms of the number of talented people that come out of the country. Uh, whether they're actors, directors, cinematographers, whatever. Um, we've just got a surplus of them. Not enough money to go around in Australia, so they head over here to Hollywood where they're finding increasing success. Now, I know you often return to directing um, a TV pilot every year or two and you've you've worked on Revenge and The Resident. Um you were just telling me before we started that on the last one that you did that you'd never seen so many Australians come in for auditions. Is that is that normal now? A few years ago, I mean 10 years ago, well, you saw a few. But I tell you, this last round uh, in early spring of 2018, it was at least a third of the actors that actually made it to the auditions, meaning the actors who the casting director had selected to actually read for the directors, for the director and producer, um, a third of them were Australians, I, and I was bowled over by just the level of talent coming out of the country. Um, but also, it seemed as though they'd taken over. You know, I mean, the majority were still Americans, but the Australians were right up there beside them, all with all with their Aussie accents coming in to say good day immediately changing into really convincing American accents. And again, you know, uh, hats off to the acting academies back in Australia who, of course, out of necessity, have to teach their actors how to speak in regional British, regional American accents, you know, um, as opposed to the majority country like America where you, you would never think you'd go to, to an acting school and learn how to speak the Australian accent. Yeah, and now they know that Australians can speak that accent. Unlike when Anthony LaPaglia started, he had to pretend he was American because they kept thinking they heard his accent, you know, in the auditions, right? Right. So um, do you feel also the, that ethic of Australians being hard workers? Because I've heard a lot of directors say they like casting English and Australian actors because they know they're not going to have that ad- any attitude on their sets. Is that true? Yes, it is true. The English are the easiest because they have such respect for the process of acting and directing, um, which comes from from their uh, uh, extreme theatre background. So the hierarchy of the relationship between actor and director is instilled into their work ethic. But the Australians are the second easiest. They have a anything-goes attitude to everything. <laughs> They'll try anything with enthusiasm, um, and the Americans probably are uh, the third easiest, um, and the reason they don't, they're not as easy as the Aussies or the Brits is simply because they're afraid. It's fear, and that fear comes from being a part of something as opposed to the Australians who, are, who you know, it's all a gift for all of us. We've got nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. As so. Rachel Griffiths said, you know, you, you just stay here until you get something because you've got to come home a long way with your tail between your legs if you don't. so Give it a go, mate, <laughs> is the Australian uh, ethos uh, and that makes them a pleasure to work with. Well, you've directed a lot of good Australians um, and even recently Brenton Thwaites. You give young Aussies, a, you know, you've given a few of them their, their start. Is that... You're obviously just picking the best actors. 
Yeah, you pick the best actors, but of course, if they happen to be Australian as well, then you have a sweet spot for them. Think about someone like Nicole Kidman and Brenton Thwaites and people like that. And you've also directed people like Ange- Angelina Jolie and Meryl Streep. I mean, can you, as a director, can you see something in common with the great ones? Fearlessness is the thing that the great actors have in common because it, you've got to be fearless in order to put yourself out there and unless you put yourself out there you're never going to take the audience to a place they haven't been before and that's what we pay for to go somewhere that we haven't been can you tell us what's next for you in america australia and and china a film uh an adventure film um called killer 10 um but certainly in australia the next film will be the rats of tobruk um, which is a World War II uh, real story. The Chevelle, uh Charles Chevelle um, made the first Rats of Tobruk and I'll make the second one. Wow, that's But he, he hasn't got the advantage I've got, which is a dad who was there and a diary written by a dad who was there. Wow, it sounds great. Um, so there won't be too many Australian actors sleeping in your guest house for the foreseeable future? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> we listed them all off before, like Joel and Jason, Nicole. You've had a... a a lot um, and a lot of people owe you uh, a lot of support. I think you've been incredibly generous in all the years you've been here. You've always, even with the Australians in film starting out and everybody else, you've, you've always just sort of jumped in and, and been very supportive of the Aussies. So Well, I'm thankful. We're thankful for you. So thanks very much for the chat. Thank you. I've known Phil for decades, but what I love about doing these podcasts is that I not only learn so much about the early days of the people I talk to, but we all get a lesson in film history in the process. Looking back now, it's hard to believe that if a few people hadn't got together and created a government-sponsored film organisation, we'd never have such a rich history of Australian films. Phil's gearing up for his next movie, a remake of Rats of Tobruk. Well, it's not really a remake because his own grandfather fought in the 1941 siege of Tobruk during World War II. But no doubt, Phil will put his own spin on it anyway. And I'll be first in line to buy a ticket. That's all for now from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater, and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au. Download the app or look me up on iTunes. Thank you.